Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. In this podcast, we discuss life as a security leader and challenges and opportunities that accompany the job. Listen to our past episodes at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we're joined by Heather Hershey. Hi, Heather. Hi, Nabil. Thanks for having me on the show. My pleasure. Heather is the Senior Analyst of IT Security at Raymond James. In her role, she leads the Security Assurance Testing Program and coordinates the testing, validating, and retesting of findings and vulnerabilities. She served in the U.S. Marine Corps from 2013 to 2017 and attended the St. Leo University in Florida. After receiving her bachelor's degree in computer science, she interned at Raymond James, where she got her start in pen testing. So Heather, we like to start things off with our rapid fire round of questions to get to know our guests better. So whenever you're ready, we can get that started. All right, let's do it. Apple or Android? Android. What's the most used app on your phone? Uh, Twitter um, for the security feeds. What was your first job? Was it in technology or security or something else? It was actually at Sonic Drive-In. I was a car hop who skated around. I always wanted to go to a Sonic. It's actually something I used to watch on TV before moving to the US, but then I've never actually been to a Sonic itself. If you could live anywhere, where would it be? Australia for the scuba diving and the outdoorsy things you can do. You're not worried about any of the animals that are constantly trying to kill you? Not too much. I think my biggest fear is snakes. So I actually recently saw that a python was found in a grocery store and that would freak me out. My biggest fear is a snake coming out of the toilet. So that's always a worry. What's your uh, favorite meal, breakfast, lunch, or dinner? I would have to say lunch. Any particular meal items? I'm a big fan of restaurants, soup, and salads. What's your favorite holiday? Halloween. What do you like to do when you're not working on securing Raymond James? I actually recently got a puppy. He's five months old. So I've been training him, going out with him, doing the dog park thing. And then scuba diving is one of my biggest hobbies that I love to do. What was the last thing that you read? Extreme Ownership. It was an audiobook and probably one of the best books I've read in a while. What is the favorite part of your job? Fixing findings, because then I know our security posture has improved. What's the least favorite part of your job? Talking with people. <laughs> Any people in particular? Not really. It's mostly convincing them that fixing something is a priority. Last one. What's your favorite cybersecurity event or conference? I've only been to a couple so far, and I would have to say Black Hat, just because some of the talks there shed some light on some new vulnerabilities and ways to exploit them. Awesome. Well, that was our rapid fire round of questions. So thank you for indulging us. And we definitely feel like we know you a little better now. So to get to the main part of our podcast, let's start with something that I know has been getting some focus recently, which I, and I also know that you've spent time looking at it, which is around PCI compliance. Obviously, it's important, especially in the financial services industry. Recently, there have been updates to the standard that's been made. Can you share with us a little bit about what maybe leaders need to be aware of in terms of some of the changes? And in particular, are there specific things that you're focusing on with the changes to PCI? 
Yeah, so they released version 4.0, which is being rolled out for the new requirements in two different ways. So there is the effective immediately for all 4.0 assessments and then best practices until March 2025. After that, it becomes effective. So with the effective immediately requirements, I think one of the big things is the roles and responsibilities for all requirements. So it means that you have to have documentation, assignment, and understanding of every role per the requirement. So as an example, that would be like the racing matrix. And then one of the other significant ones that's effective immediately is having documentation of the PTI scope and making sure that it's confirmed every 12 months. For some organizations, they don't have clear lines of what their scope is and there are some gray areas. So I think this will be a big lift for some organizations. And then for the 2025, there's 51 new requirements that become effective. Some of the key ones that I've been looking at is the multi-factor authentication for all accounts to the cardholder data environment rather than just the security administrators. Next is they're requiring a target risk analysis be performed periodically for systems that don't have anti-malware protection. So having to perform that risk analysis in depth pretty often is I think going to be a lift that might be forgotten about by organizations. And then maintaining an inventory of custom software to facilitate of vulnerabilities and patch management. So because of the custom software, I see that being an issue. And then also with the custom software, another requirement is making sure that it can't be exploited by common attacks or vulnerabilities. With there being 51 new requirements in 2025, there's a lot more that I could go into, but I think the key here that PCI DSS, the new standard is doing, is requiring more documentation, review, and security controls. The good addition with the 4.0 standard is that they're allowing customized implementation, focusing on the objective's purpose, so you don't have to meet the control the way PCI states. You can also come up with your own implementation, which focuses more more on what the organization can do to establish security controls to meet their needs. So interestingly, I I really like talking about MFA in particular, because to me, it seems like MFA should really be the bare minimum that an organization should be providing from an authentication perspective. But it seems like it's still quite a bit of a challenge to get MFA and implemented across the board, which is probably why the standard is being updated to be a little more stricter around MFA. Would love to get your perspective on what are some of the key challenges to implementing MFA across the board and why we still haven't seen it be widely adopted like I was expecting it to. Absolutely. And I I agree with you. I think multi-factor authentication should be the standard across the board. Some of the areas that I have seen challenges of implementing it across the board is for your custom websites or codes that you use for PCI, you may not have written it to require multi-factor because it's already internally in your environment. So they have multi-factor if you're trying to VPN into your environment, but then once you're internal on your intranet, they don't have multi-factor on those applications. So I see that being a big lift. Also, some of older applications just weren't written to support multi-factor. And I know some applications are still the longest password they can use is eight characters. So 
that's going to be hard for people using older software to implement this. I do know that more applications are making it a standard to have that enhanced authentication a requirement. Yeah, and, and that, that makes sense. It's still a little surprising to me that we haven't been able to update authentication schemes, for, even for some of the older applications, but I do know that they're not always being developed or maintained, which maybe adds to the challenge there. Another thing that we often talk about here and would love to get your perspective on is around the talent shortage in cybersecurity. You know, there's clearly an issue there to try and find good talent that can do the work. For people who are new to the industry, do you have any recommendations or things that worked well for you when trying to get up to speed on the latest techniques or a way to effectively showcase that you have the right skills to get into the cybersecurity space? Yeah, so nowadays, just having your bachelor's degree is no longer the standard. I think having one or more industry certifications to showcase your knowledge Personally, me, I started out with Network Plus and Security Plus, and then moving more into the security testing type space or more security focused. I'm a firm believer and I have accounts for try and hack me, hack the box. I know one thing that can really showcase your talent is when you have a home testing lab and you set up your own lab environment of learning, you know, how do servers work? How do group policy works? How does AD work? And then, you know, asking personally for me during interviews, I ask if people have a home lab because that means they're going above and beyond trying to figure out different technologies and how they work. And then also having write-ups to showcase your process and steps of going through different scenarios of setting up your home lab, trying to break your firewall, different boxes that you do on Hack the Box or Try and Hack Me really shows that you're going through the process, you know your steps, and that you're actually doing it versus looking up the answer. Is there one specific lab environment or one specific tool you would ask people to get started with if they've never done anything in cybersecurity? If they've never done anything, virtual machines are the easiest way to get started. You can download either VMware or VirtualBox and then, you know, get Windows 10, get Windows 2019 server, Ubuntu, Kali, and, you know, just test out different things, learn how it works. And then there's also a lot of good books on starting on the hacking space, starting from the very beginning and setting up different environments so that you can test it. And then also on Try and Hack Me and Hack the Box, they have their own, if you pay for the premium version, they have their own virtual machine built into the browser so that you don't have to download anything. I think this is good for people who are just getting started. They don't want to buy an expensive computer. And then, you know, you can go through different steps. Try and Hack Me has like an academy to go from you have zero knowledge all the way up to advanced knowledge on different topics, not just hacking. And then Hack the Box just recently released their academy edition, which also has a certification at the end that is right now being compared to OSCP. So going in, in that vein, you know, you obviously have been exposed to various certifications and, and resources that have helped you. Can you share specifically any certifications that you like the most and why? So I'm a huge fan of SANS courses. 
I've already completed three. And the material, they update quite frequently. So you're really getting a lot of knowledge. They do start off with, you know, more of their advanced courses if you already haven't taken prior SANS courses or have some knowledge. But those are quite expensive. So it depends where you are in your journey on taking those. If you wanted to start off on something a little bit more price friendly, eLearn Security has a great program along with Pentester Academy. So eLearn Security is more PowerPoint focused, but their certifications are full hands-on. So I took their junior penetration tester cert and it was multiple choice, but you had to hack your way through the challenges to get the answers to those questions. You couldn't just randomly guess. So that to me was a great thing because that proved I really knew what to do when you're trying to hack. And then Pentester Academy has a bunch of videos. I think it's more than like 400 and they also have boot camps and they explain from zero knowledge all the way up to, you know, more advanced topics. And when you're really starting to get started, you have to learn how to think and why you think certain ways versus going through the motions. Also, there's a lot of free training courses out there to get familiar with products. So I've done Splunk, Palo Alto, Microsoft, and there's a bunch more out there. And that's the one great thing that I love about the cyber world is there's so much free stuff out there to get you familiar with tools and products and how to do certain things. Yeah, that's that's very true. There's there's tons of resources today that are available for free to get started if you don't want to invest money in the first place, but absolutely true. And those are some good ones. Um, so thanks for sharing that. You know, would love to understand from you if you have specific things from a security perspective and initiatives that you have that you're maybe prioritizing for the new year. Yeah, so for me, we're always concerned about our internet exposed attack surface. So right now we currently have penetration tests that we do every quarter. We're trying to improve this by going to an external attack surface management tool so that we learn you know, what do we have internet exposed, what services, ports, everything like that that we have, and then how do we clean that up? We can always limit our attack surface and make it harder for the adversary to come after us. So one of our big priorities this year is, you know, how do we clean up our attack surface? In addition to that, we're focusing more on reporting and metrics. This is a huge thing for when we communicate to our stakeholders of, you know, different findings so that they can see an, an easy way that they're progressing over time, whether we're having more vulnerabilities, less vulnerabilities, how fast we're remediating them. If they're a critical vulnerability, you know, how fast do we remediate that vulnerability? And then documentation. That's one of our huge things that I think is missing a lot in the security world is having proper documentation. I've always been a firm believer of documentation. So so if I win the lotto one day, anybody could take over my job because everything is written down. I definitely have been slacking on that over 2022. So we're trying to fix that in 2023. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, the attack surface space and external perimeter space has become more and more popular lately and has become a focus, really. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's more because there's just so much more news coverage around, you know, ransomware attacks and other vulnerabilities where attackers are just exploiting low-hanging fruit to, to get access and, and privileged access to your systems and then holding it ransom. 
Absolutely. And a lot of organizations, you know, put a website out there or put something out there for a short amount of time and then forget about it. Or, you know, they're making updates to certain websites and they accidentally disable multi-factor. And now you have single factor out there and that's easy for an adversary to brute force and gain access. So having that constant coverage of what you have internet exposed is the key to defending against the adversary. So if we can maybe shift gears a little bit, I would like to understand from you around your vulnerability management strategy and what's been working well for you. And, you know, often people like to talk about what really works well. I would love to learn what maybe mistakes you learned from and what you learned from them that you can share with us in the first place. Yeah, so I'm actually really lucky because I only have to deal with the vulnerability management from a pen testing perspective. So I have a lot less volume than Raymond James vulnerability management of our overall enterprise. One thing that when I first got started doing this is I didn't understand the vulnerability through and through. And that led to, you know, when the stakeholder was trying to remediate it, I had to go back and forth with the tester maybe a month later, two months later to truly understand what the risk was and how to properly remediate it. So learning the vulnerability through and through, and then actually making sure that the report has everything you could possibly think of. That was a big help when I first got started, I wasn't doing and it has made the world of a difference now. And then also treating the interaction with the stakeholders who actually have to remediate different things as a partnership. This helped when they were fixing stuff. I could immediately kind of retest and make sure that they properly fixed it. Also, if they didn't know what exactly they needed to do, I could help solution fixes for them. And then I think making sure that you have a really good tracking system so that you know the status of everything is a huge help doing the vulnerability management side of things. And then, like I mentioned just a bit ago, of retesting. When I first got started, I wasn't comfortable retesting vulnerabilities, and I wanted the vendor to do it. I took a bunch of different SAN certifications, e-learn security, so I actually knew what the pen tester was doing, the methodology that they were doing, so that I could recreate it myself. This really helped remediation go a lot faster because I would advertise to my stakeholders, hey, if you fix it, you think you fixed it, just you know, send me an IM and I'll retest it for you so that we can work on this together to achieve that remediation and fix whatever needs to be fixed. And then I think another thing that I just recently found out, not necessarily a mistake, but a problem that I ran into was, we, you know, we have this tracking system and I would say a good half of our stakeholders didn't even know how to navigate to where all their vulnerabilities are that I've assigned to them. So I would send out email communication every time they got a new vulnerability, explain what it was, but then they didn't know where an overall list was. So I realized that education and communication and ensuring that they know where to go, where to ask questions was a big thing that I just ran into that has been a big help once I created, you know, different filters, different metrics for them to look at so they know where to go. Yeah, I think that whole rapid feedback cycle with the stakeholders definitely helps in, in many cases, because often the frustration people have with the security groups is that they request something and it takes forever to get feedback on whether something was fixed correctly or whether something needs work. So I'm glad to hear that. And, and that's something that I hope more people will adopt to help accelerate the process there. 
So Heather, last thing, we like to make sure we get to know our guests on a, on a personal level as well. So you mentioned earlier that you're a diver and that's one of your big hobbies. Can you share a little bit with us about your journey on, on how you became a diver and what got you in? And if there's anything specific about diving that keeps bringing you back to go diving more? Yeah, so I started scuba diving in 2014. I actually got my license when I was in Okinawa, Japan. And then once I started, I, at first, so going through the training, you have to scuba dive in a pool to make sure you know the equipment. And I realized at that moment, it was the very first time I used all the equipment and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. And I thought to myself, man, I just spent all this money to get certified, fins, all the gear, and I hate it. And then we did a dive in the ocean and I just immediately fell in love. I didn't have to think I was able to turn off my brain and there was just a whole nother life underneath the ocean. There were, you know, fish everywhere, soft coral, and it was just breathtaking. So as soon as that moment hit, I was hooked. So every time I travel, I try to go to a different place to scuba dive. By far, my favorite place has been Okinawa, Japan, but just because their ocean life is pristine. They take really good care of their reefs. It's breathtaking there. I think one of the most epic moments I had was actually in the Great Barrier Reef when I went to Australia and I saw an electric eel free swimming. And it was probably about 10 feet long and it scared me a lot. That sounds fascinating. And yes, I'm, I've never been diving. I've, I've been snorkeling. I think that's the extent of my diving experience. I've never really been scuba diving. But that being said, I feel like I was scuba diving because I recently saw the movie Avatar uh, the, that was released. And there's a significant amount of underwater scenes there. Have you had a chance to look at that yet? I have not. I've seen a lot of the reviews. I'm waiting for it to go to HBO Max. But if you like snorkeling, scuba diving is a hundred times better. You don't have to fight the waves. You feel like you're right there. Anybody who likes to snorkel, I would absolutely recommend scuba diving. Do you have a favorite spot uh, for scuba diving? I, mean, I know you said Australia, Great Barrier Reef, but is there a specific location? There's actually a point in Okinawa, and I forget the point's name, but it has these really steep steps, and the ocean life there is just incredible. The one thing that's happening right now, and when I was there in Australia for the Great Barrier Reef, is there's a lot of coral bleaching. So it's, you know, taking our reefs away from us. So Japan, just being quite a bit north, their reefs have been still affected by it, but they're a lot better than the Great Barrier Reef right now. Makes sense. Well, Heather, thank you so much for, for your time today and sharing your insights and your hobbies with us. It was great chatting with you and I look forward to chatting with you more soon. Thank you for having me. It's been a great time. Thank you for listening. If you want to join us as a guest on the podcast or have a recommended guest, please email us at podcast at netspy.com. Until next time.